0: You're listening to Impact Theory.
1: Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, Impact, baby! Hey, everybody. Welcome to Impact Theory. Our goal with this show and company is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you actually execute on your dreams. All right. Today's guest is a two-time Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree who turned a personal tragedy into one of the most successful social movements in modern U.S. history. A self-proclaimed civil rights astronaut, the trajectory of this Harvard University graduate's life was forever altered when she was raped in her final semester at college. After encountering a justice system so systemically broken that convicted rapists had more rights than their victims, she realized that if change was going to happen, it was going to be up to her. Armed with the belief that freedom is not free, she got to work and founded Rise, a national civil rights nonprofit with the aim of ending sexual violence. To date, she and her fellow risers have written and gotten enacted into law the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights, which was passed by a unanimous vote becoming only the 21st bill ever passed unanimously. For her work here and abroad, she's been named a Foreign Policy Top 100 Leading Global Thinker, the Marie Claire Young Woman of the Year, the Tempest Number 1 Woman of Color Trailblazer, one of the Frederick Douglass 200, and, most accurately capturing the scope of the impact that she's had, she was nominated for the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. So please, help me in welcoming the woman who's become one of Shepard Ferry's iconic faces of the future the former NASA intern who spends her spare time hunting for new planets, the indomitable, Amanda Nguyen. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Of course. The crazy thing diving into your story is a lot of people talk about wanting to change the world, Mm -hmm. but not many of them actually do. It's such a big task. When you're looking at a problem that big, how do you help people break it down and turn it into a process that they can actually execute against?
0: I love the way you frame that question, which is breaking it down. Because hope and dreams are two different concepts to me. And what I like to train, teach my organizers, is that hope means you have a plan, right? Um, you know, you can dream of anything, right? But When you have hope for something, it means that we have concrete goal and that there are steps from plan A all the way to that goal. That's one part of it. The other part is I truly believe that we already have all of the light within us to achieve what it is that we want to achieve. And that a lot of growing up is just trying to not be afraid of our own light. What I mean by that is, well, if you want to be uh, a pop singer, then go be that. Um, if you want to be an astronaut, then go be that. You know, and if you want to change the law, take it from someone who has, go do that.
1: So walk me through the the go be that, the go do that. It, it's a very powerful statement, but I think it's also where a lot of people get lost. Yeah. So they hit the, okay, I want to be an astronaut, right. which is another dream of yours. So something you've stated very publicly, I want to be an astronaut and a president, which is pretty extraordinary, <laughs> but actually pretty interesting because I think you're making some incredible world-changing moves that also set you up pretty powerfully for both. But when people hit that wall of like this is so big, and I don't know where to begin. Mm-hmm. What concept of like that first thread mm-hmm. do you teach them to pull on? Yeah. Um, and it might be useful to understand like, as you were going through your own trauma, totally. instead of being overwhelmed and, and feeling like, I don't know how to begin this process, what was that first concrete step that you took?
0: Yeah, look, my background is in national security and astrophysics, so I look at systems and then I learn how to hack them, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is that the most powerful tool we all have is our voices. And so once again, we recognize that, um, given the technology we have, social media in this 21st century, um, the platforms uh, that exist in order to amplify our voices have been democratized in a sense. So while a tweet can be a tweet, a tweet can turn into a movement, like me too. Um, And that is something that um, we shouldn't underestimate. But to your point, Um, which is at what points of catalyst did I realize that this is a very big problem but how can I push through it? Uh, Very honestly, it was a very deep sense and conviction in the principles and values that I'm fighting for. One, realizing that my story is not mine alone. I remember walking into the local area rape crisis center and there weren't enough seats for us in the waiting room. And I thought to myself, If I have resources, if I have a Harvard Law professor as my attorney and we're still going through a labyrinth that is a criminal justice system, well, what is everybody else going through that doesn't have that, right? Um, And for me, life was a series of choices. At that moment, that choice was um, accept the injustice or rewrite the law. And one of these things is a lot better than the other. Um, Yeah, so having a very deep sense of a North Star, right, that North Star for me was passing these rights and then also realizing that this is not only for me, I think uh, social movements can be fueled by anger but it can't be sustained on anger, Ooh. yeah, I think only hope can sustain social movements um, and so at a point where you run out of that anger, right, because it will run out um, and you will hit what is often called activism fatigue, there's so many issues um, where you turn on the news, um, there's another catastrophe happening every single day. What can we actually do, right? And so um, that's where plans come in handy and that's where hope comes in handy.
1: All right, you've talked about hoponomics, yeah. which I think is a really interesting term. Thanks. How do we go from I'm I have the, the conviction, and so I'm gonna have my North Star. I'm gonna have the thing that's gonna give me the energy at least to get started, and I think it's re- you really hit me when you said that the anger will burn out. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we connect to hope in a moment of either tragedy or despair or feeling overwhelmed? How do we connect to that hope? Mm-hmm. And then how do we begin the process of either researching or building that plan?
0: Yeah, the hardest part about Rise is when an organizer, a new riser, we call them risers, organizers, comes to me and says, I just, I just want to make sure that no one in my community has to go through what I had to go through. Um, and so often, there, there's a tradition um, in the world of people taking their painful living truths and channeling that into justice. And so often, people have to come to the realization that maybe their own personal justice will not be seen. That is the most difficult part, right? But um, after realizing, well, hey, maybe I can make sense of this by channeling what happened to me so that I can change the world, you know, that in itself is transformative. Um, And after passing 20 laws, all unanimous, in around 20 months, <laughs> uh, I built um, and created a theory of organizing, and that's called hoponomics or the economics of hope. <laughs> uh, the concept is that hope is contagious, right? In social movement building, it's uh, an art and a science. Um, you're architecting, essentially, um, again, hope. Uh, it's organizers from wherever they are understanding that um, the people, who have the solutions to the world's most pressing problems are the people who live that problem every day. And so if it's community centered and if we're able to give those people in the community the tools to understand the system, how to hack it, where are the points, the catalysts of decision making um, to, in our case, advance a bill? How do you uh, tell your story in a way that um, creates empathy? Um, How do you coalition build? Um, And uh, how do you learn about the incentives of other people, um, then maybe we can move and shake some things. And and I'm so proud to say, you know, that not I have passed these 20 laws, but that I was able to train other people and that they passed these laws.
1: Yeah, that is really extraordinary, and your whole notion of coalition building and the fact that we're living through one of the most politically divisive times right now, and the fact that you were able to get these bills passed unanimously is pretty extraordinary. Um, You've talked very openly about coalition building is something that's strategic. There were things we had to give up on to make sure that we had people come to the table. I have to believe that you've learned some pretty powerful lessons about how we bring people that would otherwise want to fight mm-hmm. and disagree to the table. Mm-hmm. What are some tools of coalition building, mm-hmm. of you know, deploying empathy that allow you to bring these people together?
0: Yeah, so I'll tell um, I'll start with the, the hard news first, which is there is a difference between doing good and feeling good. And right now there is a lot of cathartic performance. Political theater, this, both sides, both parties are responsible for this. People who just, it certainly feels good to perform, um, to perform their ideas to the max. But I, along with 25 million other rape survivors in the United States, did not have that luxury. For me, I didn't have the political luxury of not getting my civil rights passed. I had to pen them into existence or else no one would. And in my specific case, um, it was that my evidence, or colloquial known as a rape kit, would be actively destroyed with a timer set on it. So it was not only just sheer oppression, but an urgent sense, um, an hourglass ticking, you know, and I I kind of uh, compared it to like living through a saw game where I only had X amount of time until my justice would slip like sand through my fingers, And so because of this, my bottom line wasn't to tit for tat with somebody else. It was, how do I get you to the table so you understand that we are all in this together and that we have shared values of humanity? That's the first part. You know, The second part, um, one of the biggest critiques that I get is that I'm not radical enough and that the change that we at Rise create is incremental. Um, and I own that we had to compromise in order to get these laws on the books. Um, But what that did was, while we created the first law that may not have been what we all wanted, the laws that were built subsequently, modeled after it, kept pushing the boundaries for progress. Um, And to me, I'm okay with that.
1: You've said that having a voice is one of the most powerful tools that we have at our disposal. Mm -hmm. How do people use that voice in a way that will actually get them where they wanna go? Like when I hear that people are criticizing you for being radical, that makes me nervous in the sense that, well, you're just gonna end up back in these divisive camps and, right. and we're back to you know, the kabuki mm-hmm. of um, the, the grand performance without anybody actually holding themselves accountable to right. results. So what do you teach your risers to do with their voice?
0: Yeah. So for our risers, we train them to cut through the political discord, right? Um, when uh, a riser walks into uh, an office of a member of Congress, they know everything that that member has ever said on the issue, Um, they know how they voted on it, they know the stats and statistics, but they also know um, the personal stories. What has that member said about this issue? Um, What does that member care about? Um, And also what is that member incentivized by, right?
1: How much of what you're learning in all of this do you think applies to your life outside of politics? Um, Some of the strategies that you guys used in the early days when people weren't paying attention to you I found really powerful and seemed like they would apply no matter what. Yeah. Um, walk us through some of the ways that you got people to listen when they told you not to come to Massachusetts, it wasn't going to pass, don't even bother, yeah. but you did go and you managed in a very short period of time to go from it's not going to pass to it passes unanimously. Yeah. What, what were your actual tactics that day?
0: That situation, um, and for folks who don't know, um, the original law that I wrote was for Massachusetts because that's where my civil rights are. That's where my case is. That's where I was raped. And I remember the legislative session closing, the state house closing, and it was the final um, 24 hours. I was in DC and I was taking a flight up to uh, Boston to fight for my rights. And uh, I get a call from a political advisor, and she says, The speaker is not bringing up your bill for a vote, it's going to die. I thought to myself, well, why should I get on this plane, and go to Massachusetts, and then just watch my civil rights get slaughtered? Um, And it was other survivors who said, just show up and be present. Let them all see your face. And it was one of the best lessons that I've ever learned, which is just show up, just be there, Just, just show up. For the next 14 hours, we, just representative to senator, to office, to office, uh, went, walked in and introduced ourselves, why we were fighting for this, why it needed to be put up for a vote. We, call, we got people to call in um, and I witnessed those calls coming into these offices. Uh, we were very annoying <laughs> to the secretaries of the speaker's office. Um, but at the end of the day, the speaker did relent and he brought it up for a vote and it passed unanimously. And that's how I and 400,000 other survivors in Massachusetts got civil rights that day. Um, And the lesson for me is it's not over until it's over, Um, but also uh, that there's so much power to just going for it, just believing that you can and fighting until the very end, because you don't know that it's over until it's over.
1: (laughs) You've got some pretty extraordinarily big dreams. like when I think that the person who ended up writing these laws and getting them passed and facing down a justice system that most people are paralyzed by the mere mention of having to crack that sort of infamously um, just black box also wants to be an astronaut, which is another just infamously difficult like percentage-wise it's it's crazy.
0: Yeah, because at the end of the day um you know, my skin in the game isn't to, I don't know, have a legacy within this. I just want to create change and then I want to get off the planet because I want to go to space. <laughs> um, and uh, I think for that um, it really helped me uh, take a, an orbital perspective, if you will, um, on what my role is in, in social justice, which I'm also happy to talk about, uh, the work that I do and the way that um, I designed organizing and RISE is very influenced by astrophysics and very influenced by space, or the overview effect.
1: Tell us about the overview effect.
0: I'd be so happy to. (laughs) Um, So when astronauts go into space for the first time, many of them go through this profound cognitive psychological shift. And it's called the overview effect, where for the first time they see All living things that have ever lived or died on this pale blue dot Um, and it overwhelms them with awe and a sense that we are all on this spaceship Earth together. Um, So they leave Earth as technicians but return to Earth deeply moved and um, dedicated to uh, becoming a global citizen or a humanitarian.
1: Wow, that's really extraordinary. So you seem to already be the deep humanitarian so, what is it that drives you to want the overview effect? And um, a lot of times, when you say, "You know, I want to get off this planet," it's a little tongue-in-cheek, makes it sound like, "You know, I want to get away from the madness." <laughs> but I actually, I have a feeling that there's something else driving that. So, what makes you, um, somebody so in touch with that already want to go to space?
0: Um, when I wake up every day the two burning questions that I have is, what is my place in the universe and what am I gonna do about it? And I think that both astrophysics and humanitarian work answers those same questions. Um, but also, when I was 16, I had two heart surgeries. Oh. Yeah, my first one failed. So um, I had a ventricular tachycardia. I was in a wheelchair for seven months. I had a condition called sudden death, which meant that I could die at any time. Um, and that I was just lucky to wake up another day. And so for me, that reset um, the way that I thought of the world. Every day is a blessing. Um, And also, what am I gonna do with my time on Earth? And so I'm gonna do whatever I want, which is living my authentic self, um, which is hunting for exoplanets, and also rewriting the law because I have the right to do that um, and because I think it's the right thing to do. Um, and then also encouraging other people um, to, to see that they can be whatever it is that they want to be too.
1: What is it about exoplanets that you find so interesting?
0: What it interesting about exoplanets? <laughs> um, I think that it's built into our DNA to want to be explorers. Um, but it's also, uh, as somebody who's lived in this body um, and had to deal with the different um, communities of marginalized identities that I am a part of, uh, how do we create a world that is, again, fair um, and has the potential to restructure um, other people's potential, right? Um, I think that's super, super cool. Yeah.
1: What do you think about the perception, so you talk about being a part of multiple marginalized groups, mm-hmm. and I remember the study came out that said if you remind an Asian woman before she takes a math yes. test that she's a woman, she'll do poorly. But that's if you correct. remind her that she's Asian, she'll do well. Yes, that's correct. So frame of reference mm-hmm. is my life's work, by the way. It is the mm-hmm. thing I'm more obsessed with than anything in this world. It is mm-hmm. why we do impact theory. It's to give people the ability to construct mm-hmm. a frame of reference that's empowering. Mm-hmm. So. How do you think about that? How have you built your own mindset to continue to pursue this extraordinary stuff?
0: There's not a week that goes by where I'm not reminded that I look the way that I do. Right? Either you know, when I walk in and someone assumes that I'm not the boss, or I walk in and they assume that, oh, my English is so good. How is that possible? <laughs> um, it's constant, um, or, um, You know, sometimes when I give speeches, um, uh, I ask uh, the women in the room to raise their hand if they have ever, within that last past couple of days, thought when they walked out to their car or at night, how to not be raped. And nearly all of them raise their hands and all the men all look around and they're like, oh my God, you know, this constant vigilance that women have to put up, or people who um, feel threatened have to put up um, in order to just survive. so you know, again, even though I'm consistently reminded of this, um, when people ask me how did I pass these laws, how did I believe I could do it at 20-something years old, um, and it comes back to that North Star, that um, that very, very rock-solid, grounded belief that history was on my side, um, that this was way bigger than me, and that there was just no other way. <laughs> That I, I, I had to do this, not only for my own civil rights, but because millions of people also needed it too. And because it is my constitutional right to do so, um, and the right thing to do.
1: You've also called yourself, uh, I forget the exact words you used, but like an unending optimist. A
0: pathological optimist. Yes, yeah, nice. but I like your phrase. Man. <laughs>
1: How do you step into every day with that optimism? Is it just natural for you, or is it something that you actively cultivate because you know it's useful?
0: Well, yeah, one has to actively cultivate that. <laughs> um, I think astronauts and activists have to be um, extreme optimists in a sense, where you're so you're presented with. Um, these incredible odds, and yet you're like, yeah, I can go to space on this as a guinea pig on this, you know, uh, rocket that might explode, that has exploded in the past. Um, and same thing with activists that, in the face of historical centuries of oppression, that we still believe, um, we still believe in that greater future or the, our ability to push for a more perfect union, right? Um, and Again, I think the most powerful force in the world is hope. I think love is a derivative of hope, right? The fact that um, we can, in fact, dream of better worlds. We can um, think uh, of uh, what it would and could and should be like and then push for that. And I think that is what makes us human.
1: Do you think anyone can cultivate optimism? Yeah, for sure. Are there steps?
0: Well... Yes. (laughs) Um, I don't have a plan outlined for (laughs) cultivating optimism, but- You had to
1: ballpark swag me a few.
0: Honestly, counting one's blessings is is pretty helpful for me. Um, But also, um, knowing that change takes hard, relentless work um, and that there will be days when it sucks, um, but then there are days that remind you, why, why it's worth it, what is it that you're doing, you know? Um, I get a lot of survivors coming up to me, sharing with me their stories, um, and to me, every time a survivor does that, it's like they're handing over a coal, right? It's, it's a weight that I carry with me, but it also keeps and fuels my fire for the fight, you know? And, and over time, under pressure, we all become diamonds.
1: Nice, I like that. What do you think is the most useful trait that you have that's allowed you to excel like you've excelled?
0: Um, it is pathological optimism, uh, but it's also, quite honestly, hard work. Right? Um, I, I think, and I'm gonna say something that might not be very popular, especially with millennials, um, but um, because of certain marginalized identities, I assume. There is an often um, just battle between the time that I have for self-care and the time that I have to just put in the hard work, you know? And the 20 laws that have been created is a result of immense work. It's almost like near obsession of justice, <laughs> right? Um, to be driven by a fire where everything all day is about this. And unfortunately, you know it is just my experience, so I'll just talk about it from my experience. You have to put in that work, right? Um, there's this uh, cartoon of um, two people uh, starting at um, you know, a, a starting line to uh, finish a race and one of them um, you know, has, is just the race and the other person has like a chain and there's a crocodile, <laughs> um, a moat and all these spikes. And um, life is not fair, but life is also what we make of it. Um, and so for me, the reason why I'm not in space yet is because I realized that after passing these laws that I knew the path through the obstacle course and that maybe if I am able to create a blueprint, I could show other people too. And that if they can do it better than me, that's when I've succeeded. How do you
1: advise people to be authentic? I find that a lot of times people aren't sure like what that even means. They don't have a clarity in their life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I ask people, what makes you cry?
1: That's interesting.
0: Yes. Because whatever moves you is what you're passionate about. Um, and. It could be out of joy, it could be out of sadness, it could be whatever. But what is it that strikes in you, in your heart, in your soul, when you feel it? Um, uh, a burning sensation or just something that makes you get out of bed, leap out, you know? Mm. that there, Find yourself in, in those moments um, when you're really close to your soul.
1: I like that idea of finding yourself a lot. And I've got to imagine one of the times in anyone's life where it's gonna be hard to really find yourself is after something traumatic mm-hmm. or very difficult. Mm-hmm. What has the healing process been like for you? What do you tell other survivors yeah. about that healing process?
0: Yeah, first of all, there is no one way to heal. Right? So I'll just speak for my own experience. Um, for me, the way that I found justice was by creating justice. Um, I penned my own civil rights into existence. I remember standing above the balcony of the United States Congress watching each member vote. That in itself to me was a form of justice, personal justice. Um, but the transformation of going through and enacting my right as a citizen and also being able to help other people do that too um, has been the greatest thing of all. I think. A lot of risers, um, again our organizers, come to RISE and stay at RISE because uh, they not only transform, um, you know, change on a macro level with laws for millions of people, but also on a micro level themselves.
1: Do you have uh, any more of those negotiating tips? That's one thing that I thought would be really useful for people to hear.
0: Yeah. Um, There are, uh, what I'm saying is a description, not a prescription, right? Mm. Um, but also, we've passed these things 20 times, so um, it works. Um, it's uh, the idea of, instead of being a battery ram, being like water um, and flowing through the cracks and, um, and creating a tide that pushes things through. Um, and so, we're identifying, well, where are the cracks? Um, where are the systems? So most bills um, that RISE works on, civil rights bills, go through the Judiciary Committee. Um, and uh, when a bill gets introduced, it's uh, put into a, a committee, ours is judiciary. And so in this committee, let's just start from the Senate in the United States Congress, for simplicity's sake. Um, at the time that I uh, was advocating for these rights, the chair was Senator Grassley. Nobody could put up the bill for a vote except for the chair. He has the sole authority to do so. So why would I call my member of Congress when I could just cut out the middleman and go to the person who has the, the authority, right? Um, at the risk of being very basic, um, a lot of people don't actually know how a bill becomes a law, right? Um, it's actually my pet peeve when people say, call your member of Congress, because I don't think that actually works, and as an activist, let me, let me tell you why. <laughs> um, There are really only four people who control the process of a bill uh, to become a law within the United States Congress. And those four people are the people who have what is called agenda-making authority, right? These are people who have the authority to put a bill on the agenda for a vote. So I talked to Senator Grassley. Once the bill makes it out of the committee, goes to the floor, the sole person who could bring that up is Mitch McConnell, majority leader. why would I go to other people if he is, again, the sole person who um, makes that decision? You know, most, most people don't realize this, right? Same thing in the House. Um, at the time, it was uh, Bob Goodlatte for the chair of the House Judiciary and then Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, convincing these four people helped get this bill through um, in a unanimous way, um, but also get it through in seven months. Bills usually take 10 to 15 years to pass. Yeah. And we got it through in seven months, a group of 20-something-year-olds, right? Learn the system, hack the system. Mm. And when people realize this, then they can see, oh, well, it maybe is not as difficult as it sounds, you know? Um, There's a path to victory. Um, And uh, I'll show you how.
1: it's really interesting breaking things down in terms of if you want to hack the system first you have to understand the system once you understand the system then you can begin to find those points of leverage or like you're saying flow through the cracks yeah um but it's interesting to me how many things come down to like when i think about okay you just hit an impenetrable wall what Mm -hmm. are the threads that you begin to pull at to really understand something for me it always begins with knowledge begins with research so it's going to be all right if i want to understand how the system works First, I need to understand the terms. Mm -hmm. I just need to, like, there are words that are going to be used that will allow me to even unlock the next search that I'm going to do on Google or if I'm, you know, at the library or whatever. I need to know what actual words and phrases to look for. So beginning just to understand what I'll call the rules of the game Mm -hmm. is really essential. But... I think people stop because they're like I don't even know the words rather than say okay step number 1 is going to be to learn the words learn the lingo right. then understand who the players are then mm-hmm. understand the power structure mm-hmm. understand you know how this all eventually works mm-hmm. when you have that when you have the pressure points then it becomes actually plausible because you can put that plan into place Totally Even looking at um so like I said at the beginning of the show, I, I really do want to change the world. So that's the thing that drives me. But when I think about changing the world, I think about how we break things down into actionable items. Totally. And so even this, okay, my goal, the mission of this company is to pull people out of the matrix by giving them an empowering mindset. Mm-hmm. But how do you do that at scale? Mm-hmm. So and you know, really being honest about what works, what doesn't, mm-hmm. to your earlier point about we live in the real world mm-hmm. and so you have to deal with the world the way that it is not the way that you wish it were, um, which becomes very empowering actually, but as we began to break down how we were going to impact people at scale, I had to acknowledge that what I do on a daily basis is essentially talk to camera and say, think like this, and that affects two to five percent of people, and they really do make change, but there's up to 98 percent of the people that are unaffected by that. Mm -hmm. And so what haunted me was how do I affect them, and so by doing what I was just saying, figuring out the terms, finding the different threads to pull on, understanding how to research this problem, figuring out, okay, I'm dealing with the human animal. That's what I'm trying to affect. How does the brain process data? How can I then insert myself into that process so that they're building something that is based essentially on the raw materials that I give them? Mm -hmm. And so it's so interesting to hear you talk about this stuff because That's essentially what you're doing. You're, one, gamifying, which I think is really interesting, and I actually have another question for you on that, but breaking it down into its constituent parts, finding out who the four people are that have power. First of all, finding out that four people have power, then who are those people? Then what are their interests? What's actually gonna move them forward? Mm -hmm. Not breaking down, in fact, this is an interesting story I'd love you to tell one of the early pieces of feedback you got was this isn't politically advantageous for me.
0: Oh, totally. Which
1: you could have gone nuclear, you could have like freaked out, you could have shut down emotionally, but instead?
0: Oh, I made it so that it is politically advantageous for them. Most of issues in our congressional debates, that, just words, debates. Um, And uh, it isn't around facts anymore. Um, And what... Uh, What I realized was, okay, so how do I figure out um, how to actually move these people, Um, what are they incentivized by, right? Um, So clearly, it's not only to keep their seat, um, but also uh, it's what will make them look good. that's just the reality of it. Sometimes I would uh, talk to in the early days of Rise members who just really didn't care about me and then all of a sudden when I brought a celebrity, they were, they were there. Or like if press wanted to do something, they were there. And I thought to myself, huh, okay. Well if I can't convince you on the merit of human rights, then you know what, I will bring that celebrity um, and I will bring that press um, because I will do what it takes in order for millions of people to get rights.
1: Very, very smart. And speaking of a tactic that helps people keep going, talk to me a little bit more about the gamifying. So the part that I found really interesting and I'd love to hear more about is you're saying that part of a game is that you improve your skills. Mm -hmm. So how do you help people really quantify and look at I actually am getting better?
0: Yes. (laughs) I love this part because it is probably the biggest thing I'm proud of It's not only like the 20 laws for 40 million people, um, but it's seeing people transform as their skills become better. And these skills are not only like super lobbying skills, but rather um, transformative empowerment. Um, So let me give you an example. Most survivors, when they reach out to us, um, have experienced um, trauma that has resurfaced in their lives. it may not have been recent trauma but it is It is present um, and what they're trying to do is channel that energy now into something um, and what that means is that they are very triggered and easily triggered um, and step one um, is narrative training which is owning your own story. Um, so we go through um, sessions where we sit down um, with them in a safe environment uh, and have them tell their own story. Why do you care about this? What makes you, you? And um, what do you hope to gain from this, right? Um, and over time, uh, you know, you see them transform this narrative. Um, I mean, most people are in tears after their first session. I mean, all, every I've never had a session where people didn't cry. <laughs> um, and um, you see them, own their story, workshop their own lives, and be able to tell their own stories in their own words. I think that's actually very difficult. A lot of people um, rely on um, outside um, validation rather than think, "What is my own story, and how do I tell it in my own words?" You know, who am I? You know, um, and so that's part of narrative training, um, and it's quite intense because it's around their own trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, as they go through the game. Um, they get to own their own narrative. They get to be the writers of their own stories. And then they get to tell it to people who are in decision-making positions. And then they get to convince those people to create massive change. Um, And then um, as they go, it's step by step. First, it's one senator um, or one chairperson. And then it's just the committee. And then it's the floor. And then it's the other process of the chamber. And then it's the president, you know, um, or the governor. And at the end of it, they have been exercising their own voice, the power of their own voice, the power of persuasion and empathy building. Um, and uh, at the end of the game, they're standing over the shoulder of the governor as he pens their own civil rights into existence and millions of others too. Um, and so that, that growth is um, extraordinary to see.
1: That's amazing. All right, before I ask my last question, tell these guys where they can find you, get involved with you, um, online or elsewhere.
0: Yeah, so if anyone is interested in writing, penning their own civil rights into existence and learning the system and or joining the fight, they can go to our website. So that's risenow.us slash join. Um, You can learn about Hoponomics there, go through the game yourself um, and uh, learn how the system works and make it work for you.
1: All right. My final question, I think I know how you'll answer this, but just in case, what's the impact that you want to have on the world?
0: I want people to understand that you absolutely can rewrite the law. You have it in you already to change the world. And as soon as you realize that, then you will.
1: That's amazing. All right, guys, this is somebody who is looking at the gigantic problem of making change in the world, who's not accepting excuses from herself, holding herself to a massive standard, realizing that you have to deal with the world the way that it is and not the way that you wish that it would be, and has enacted change that is so sweeping and so amazing that it's obviously leaving everybody who looks at it in awe, the fact that at her age, at any age, but especially at her age to have been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize is really, really extraordinary. And what I love is that she was able to turn this traumatic negative event and and really morph it into something that is extraordinarily beautiful and helping tens of millions of people's lives. And that's just what she's done so far, and I can only imagine how far she's gonna take this. But at the same time is not allowing herself to be easily defined is also pursuing Um, nasa is pursuing becoming an astronaut is really looking at how she can pursue the things that bring her joy And the fact that she's willing to overlook her cardiologist's advice because she wants to live life on her terms and do things that she wants to do, I think is such a powerful message. And the fact that she takes that message and then breaks it down into actionable steps that anybody can come and plug into and apply to their own life, apply to their own mission is really extraordinary. And when you play this out as to somebody who sat before an intractable problem and said, anger is not going to get me through this. I'm gonna have to find something beautiful. I'm gonna have to find a way to fill this with joy. And understood humans well enough to gamify it and make it something that can be empowering for people is really just mind-blowing. And so I highly encourage you guys to dive into her world, to explore further these ideas that she's playing with, to dream as big as she dreams, but more importantly, to come up with those plans that give rise to hope and allow you to really fall in love with something and do something with your life that is not only extraordinary from the outside but is extraordinary from the inside. All right, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.